Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover. I'm a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. And today we have two great guests. Uh, we have Noah Burke and Aaron Sklar of the Kaiser Group. They're both partners with the, uh, with the company, and they're two of the highest grossing brokers of multifamily housing in Chicago. And they focus primarily on the South Side of Chicago, which is a very large geographic region. And it, there's a, a bunch of different subsets. And they actually talk about that a little bit later in in the different neighborhoods and how they, they are different from one another later in the podcast. So I think you'll really enjoy it. This is a 2021 state of the multifamily market. We recorded it in December. So if something changes by the time we release this, uh, be aware of that. But I also want to give a quick plug uh, to Ice Miller's Distressed Investments Group. It's a group that's been brought together lawyers from across different jurisdictions and different practice areas like bankruptcy, litigation, real estate, corporate, and others talking about distressed investments. And we're doing a webinar on January 7th of 2021 at 11 Central. So we're probably going to release this episode right around that time. But if it's if you listen to this before then, then please do sign up. Contact me if you want a link to the sign up. Uh, a lot of you that receive this podcast by email uh, will also receive an invitation to that webinar. But we have some really great speakers from receivers to distressed investors to lenders talking about the state of the market, financial analysts, um, and what kind of opportunities there are. I think it's really going to be great. We'll probably have it available in some fashion after the fact. So if you're hearing this after the fact, let me know and we'll see how you can get that content to you. Enjoy the interview. Thank you. Today, we're doing the 2021 State of the Market. We have two great guests. We have Noah Burke and Aaron Sklar, partners with Kaiser Group. Noah, Aaron, thank you for coming on the show. Good to be here. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm super excited about having you guys. We we had Lee Kaiser, uh, one of the founders, um, about a year and a half ago, and he was actually talked about Kaiser Group and what it does. But here, I wanted to have two brokers who get it done on a daily basis and know what's going on on the south side of Chicago with the multifamily market. Um, Aaron, I think you you won an award for top closer in 2019. Coffee is for closers. Gotta love that. Noah, your bio says you're uh, the highest producing multifamily broker in Chicago. So two guys who really know what's going on in the business. Um, just uh, why don't you can start by just explaining a little bit about your background and what you do at Kaiser Group. I think that'd be a great way to start. Sure. So um, at Kaiser Group, we sell apartment buildings all over Chicagoland. Um, Aaron and I focus exclusively on the south side. We've got a little team down here. We stay pretty active. Uh, we close on average about 50 buildings a year. Um, so it's a, it's a very active market and uh, it's been good so far. Yeah, and to touch on what Noah was saying, uh, Kaiser Group has been um, uh, one of the top mid-market real estate brokerage firms for about a little over 16 years, uh, predominantly a north side, uh, uh, north neighborhoods of Chicagoland. And probably over the past five, six years, um, Noah and I have teamed up, and a little bit longer than that, Noah was in the south side a little bit uh, longer than I have been. But about six, seven years ago, we really got a grasp on the South Side. And like what Noah has said, 
Uh, fast forward the clock a little bit, uh, and we're selling about one building a week solely in the south side of Chicago. Yeah, that's an incredible rate of closings. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, people in the multifamily space know the asset class quite well, but tell us about who you work with in terms of what type of investors and who is buying these buildings on the south side of Chicago and uh, who are you trying to market these to? We really work with everyone. I mean, there is no, you know, boilerplate stereotypical buyer or seller. Um, we work with anyone, you know, from from guys who who came to the states from overseas without two nickels to rub together, who somehow scrambled up enough money to buy a building, and 30 years later they're deciding to sell. To your institutional, both buyers and sellers, who have accumulated either a a portfolio and are looking to add to it or dispose of it. Uh, but there really isn't a stereotypical uh, buyer type, buyer profile. It's really everyone from both ends of the spectrum and in the middle. And I would add to that, um, the, the profile, although we work with all kinds of different uh, profiles, it has shifted a bit over the last few years. Um, historically, the South Side of Chicago has been a very um, mom and pop type ownership groups where these people were buying these buildings and using them uh, solely to live off of running them as their businesses. As syndication has become more popular over recent years, we're seeing kind of a shift to more institutional, quasi-institutional type um, groups coming together and purchasing these at higher levels, lower returns, but still being able to hit the uh, numbers that they're trying to hit for their personal portfolios. What do you think has caused that shift? That you just described. Uh, good question. Good question. I think that I think a lot of it really is uh, due in part kind of to podcasts like this and to the education that's out there, where people are starting to realize um, what multifamily as an investment class has to offer over some other investment classes out there. And I think um, again, historically, it's kind of one of those things where people that have money to invest in they they almost exclusively in the past just threw it into the stock market or other similar types of investments. But as education has grown out there, um, you know, people see the, the many, many benefits uh, that multifamily has to offer as well as real estate in general, but multifamily in particular, that we just see a much, much bigger group of people that are willing to invest in this that maybe hadn't thought about it in the past. So Phil, with that said, we appreciate your indirect business very much. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, just a thought that I had is, you know, there was a period in the 90s in the first 10 years of the 2000s uh, up until 08, probably when retail was the, the darling asset class and it was just everything in retail was just going, going, going. Um, but as you know, after the last recession kind of flowing into what we'll talk about today and how the pandemic has affected multifamily, but um I would imagine as some of the investors became less interested with retail over the last 10 years, maybe they, they drifted more into the multifamily area. Yeah, absolutely. And then how, how did you two uh, become more entrenched as uh, brokers of the asset class in this geographic area? Um, I guess a little bit chance, a little bit luck. Um, when I started back in, you know, about 10 years or so ago, 
um, at Kaiser Group, there was kind of, it was, it was the bottom of the market and the bottom of the market really hit hard on the south side of the city. And I just saw kind of an opening down there where there weren't a lot of brokers focusing on the area. There weren't a lot of um, investors that were trying to get in the area. And so it just seemed like a good place um, for a younger broker to maybe cut their teeth a little bit. So I kind of went in full steam ahead and was able to create a ton of velocity down there. And um, as time went on a few years later, um, Aaron joined the team and he started just crushing it down there together. And so over time, we, you know, we just, we decided to form our little group here and, uh, you know, just go after it together. And a little bit of my background, Phil, to, you know, and, and similarly, how I fell into the position is both, you know, luck and chance. I was looking to get into commercial real estate. My background prior to that uh, was in finance. I traded and I was looking to make the transition and switch to uh, commercial real estate. I interviewed uh, and I met with a couple guys at a group called Kaiser Group. And at this time, I am not from Chicago. I am um, from Detroit. I've lived in Chicago for only a few years, but my knowledge of real estate, it, it just didn't exist, right? Especially different neighborhoods of Chicago, let alone the south side of Chicago. I didn't know Jackson Park from Lincoln Park, and I probably barely knew Central Park from Jackson Park. Um, <laughs> in any event, I'm, I'm meeting with Kaiser Group, and I asked if I had any interest in selling buildings in the south side, and again, at that time, I, I didn't know any different neighborhood, and I said, yeah, absolutely ready to go. There happened to be a guy named Noah Burke down there um, who had great traction, and it was a market with tons of opportunity and not a whole lot of brokers selling buildings down there. And again, like Noah said, uh, he had unbelievable traction. I started to gain similar traction. And we realized, Bill, that if we tackle this thing together, our interests would be compounded. And now we have a team of, uh, there's, there's six of us here, just focus on the south side of Chicago. Thanks for the sharing that background. I mean, one of the things that Kaiser Group prides itself on is knowing each block, block by block, I think is right on the, the intro of your website. You know, and I think a lot of brokers are able to um, you know, look, look at listings and be familiar from a map perspective and sitting behind a desk. But how are you guys down there all the time, really just taking a look at what the buildings are and seeing what's available and getting to know these neighborhoods? Yeah, I mean, that's that's really probably one of our biggest advantages is that um, solely focusing on the south side of Chicago, um, you know, we typically tend to carry about 30 listings or so at a time. And so when we have um, that many listings, we're kind of forced to be physically in our market every day. So we see we see what's going on with our own eyes. We're able to, you know, actually get out there, talk to owners, um, and see, you know, if somebody's doing construction or see if somebody is uh, making changes at a very ground and surface level. So definitely being physically in the market every single day gives us uh, a nice little perspective on what's happening. Yeah, I would say, you know, out of all of us over here, Phil, I don't think there's one day where each of us is not, you know, call it in the field. Um, for at least an hour, whether it's just doing a quick appraisal, whether it's meeting with the building owner, whether it's conducting an inspection, um, you know, given given the sheer velocity of buildings we move, coupled with uh, our current inventory, 
there is always something going on and there is always a place that one of us needs to be. So uh, yes, we are you know, almost always in the field. Velocity is a good word to describe it. I was looking back at my notes and I, I had a note from June of 2020 to get you guys on the podcast because I just remember looking at LinkedIn, you know, like once a week, twice a week and just, gosh, these guys just closed another deal. It was like every every two weeks, you're just Noah and Aaron closing another deal, closing another deal. Um, so we've we've been on the podcast for over 10 minutes now before we've i think i've mentioned the word pandemic once but we haven't talked about it um let's let's get into it so 2020 has been an unusual word year to say the least but in addition to an actual health crisis there's also been a rise in unemployment um extended benefits were available for a while. They might not going forward. There's an election to talk about a lot of different factors that might affect the market. Um, but can you tell us about how COVID has affected the multifamily market that you're in right now? Yeah, I mean, we can touch about this bill from every single different perspective, from a seller's perspective, from a buyer's perspective, um, from an inspector's perspective, and from a lender's perspective. And as we go on, I'm sure we will touch on that. From our perspective, from a brokerage perspective, Bill, earlier in the year, I would say in uh, right when COVID was becoming, uh, you know, right when it was starting to become the issue that it still is, um, but right when it was really forming uh, most seriously, and again, not to take away from what it is, but at the height of it, I would say in end of March, April, May, uh, during, uh, you know, the height of the pandemic, I would say our business was greatly affected, mostly as a result of lenders. Um, most of our business bill uh, requires uh, buyers putting loans, putting debt on these buildings and financing them. And really when, you know, really when the banking system wasn't sure of what was going on, it, it was almost as if the lenders just shut down. Um, and I would say that that was, that was the beginning of what affected us the most. Um, once the banks opened back up end of June, end of July, or at least when they were lending more uh, typically or normally, um, due diligence had really went up. You know, like you said, with unemployment as high as it's been, there has been a moratorium on evictions, which means if a tenant isn't paying, if they're not performing, you can't evict them. Um, which has been an incredibly difficult hurdle for, for every landlord, whether you're an owner or operator of a multifamily building, retail or restaurant owner. If you have a non-performing tenant, you can't evict them. A lot of people interested in buying buildings were really, really, really digging in and just cross-referencing and making sure everything checked out, almost exponentially more than they already had been. But it's it's definitely it, it definitely is a different time to say the least. And to, to add a little bit to that, at the at the very beginning, like Aaron touched on, it was it was different. Everybody was in shock. Everybody kind of pumped the brakes for a minute, uh, mostly due to those lenders. But the most the most interesting thing I think for us to see is that I think everybody expected there to be some sort of discount coming to the market um, because of you know the many challenges that we've mentioned. But we've we've almost seen the opposite. We've almost seen just this huge rush of buyer demand and buyers just, you know, throwing 
all of this capital that had been sitting on the sidelines just at deals in general and not and not necessarily at discounted deals. Um, I think interest rates being so low has affected that or impacted that. Um, but we've we've almost seen an increase in buyer demand uh, through the pandemic, very surprisingly. Yeah, I mean, I think that might go back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier is just real estate investors that wanted to invest in retail no longer want to do so because of the, the question marks going forward. Same with office. Office is, uh, you know, roll the die. You might, we might all get vaccinated and be back three months and, or we might have major shifts in how businesses conduct business. Uh, so I think, you know, a lot of investors looked at it and just said, people need places to live regardless. Mm -hmm. And that will always be true. So that might have driven some of the demand, but I'm just speaking off the cuff here. No, I mean, I think that's, I think that's dead on. I mean, I think it's, you know, the very macro level of people breaking it down and just saying, you know, people need food and they need a place to live. And so what, what is going to hold up if there's another sort of issue like that? And, uh, you know, as you said, people are going to continue to need a place to live and multifamily offers that um, as a pretty sound investment moving forward. So with the moratoriums uh, anticipated to expire, although they could be extended on evictions and unemployment benefits um, diminishing, although I should mention we're recording this on December 9th. So if by the time we release this in January, things have wildly changed, you know, don't, don't hold it against us. But um, are you anticipating with those sort of financial stressors on residents that that might affect multifamily in your space? Well, I mean, here's, here's the interesting thing. So right now what's happening is there are, there are definitely tenants who are struggling to pay their rent. Um, and you would think that that would equal prices in multifamily going down. Um, because you know these these balances are continuing to build and build, but we're we're seeing the opposite. So at some point here, if these tenants do have to be um, evicted, you know I, I don't know that it necessarily impacts it in a negative way as far as multifamily value or multifamily activity. Um, but that it, it certainly will be an interesting question to see exactly what happens here once they open that up, because there are there are a lot of tenants who have gotten behind during this time. And make no mistake, Phil, one thing that Noah, you know, look, Noah and I have uh, the privilege of seeing, you know, so many balance sheets, so many rent rolls, so many tenant ledgers of different buildings from different building owners. And, you know, although in the news, in the media and on a macro level, you think that, look, if a tenant uh, doesn't need to pay rent more often than not, they won't. They can't be evicted. Uh, there's really nothing a landlord can do. And again, um, you don't just draw the lines with multifamilies. Um, office users, retail tenants, restaurant owners, um, we, we've seen it in, in every single industry. From everything that Noah and I have seen, every you know collection statement uh, and tenant ledger, delinquencies have been somewhat minimal. They do exist, but you know, from for the most part, we have seen such a minimal level of activity of tenants really taking advantage of uh, this disaster. And again, we thought the complete opposite in the beginning. And this, this goes back, Bill, to your question, you know, how has the pandemic affected us? In the beginning, 
we thought, you know, look, this is going to be catastrophic. Uh, if tenants don't need to pay rent more often than not, they won't. If an owner can't do anything, um, you know, pardon my French here, but they're SOL, right? Mm -hmm. From everything we have seen, there really hasn't been much consistent with tenants, you know, in, in these apartment buildings taking advantage of the situation. Yeah, like Noah was saying, there are tenants who, you know, who end up on bad luck, but they do what they can to make ends meet. If the rent is $800 a month for a one bedroom and they can only pay $500, then uh, both the tenant and the landlord typically work out an agreement uh, of some sort versus the tenant leaving the landlord hanging high and dry and the landlord planning on just throwing the tenant out when he or she is able to. Uh, it, it's really been quite amicable um, on both ends for the most part. Yeah, that's good to hear. You know, I think a lot of people had those concerns when the moratorium was in place, but you know, by and large, people are honest. People want to pay their rent. Um, people want to continue. I, I used to do evictions um, for about in 2011, 2012. We represented some receivers that took over some properties. And what I'd always find is that even in an eviction court where a tenant isn't paid, there's always a few exceptions where there's people who understand the system, but by and large, everyone had a story. Everyone wanted to pay rent. They just, everyone had a story of why they could not and the hard luck that had fallen on, on them or challenging circumstance of sorts. So it's good to hear that people are continuing. I would also imagine, and you guys tell me is that, that the thing about working with people like you all who really know the buildings is to know that uh, even on one block, you know, the buildings that have higher quality living conditions and living spaces are going to be rented by paying tenants over the buildings that aren't as high of physical quality um, will probably retain their value better, even in hard times, because the tenants that have the wherewithal to pay will choose those higher quality buildings. Yeah, without a doubt, Bill. I mean, that goes, that kind of goes, you know, no matter what neighborhood you're in, the south side, the north side you know, Rogers Park, Jackson Park, if, you know, there are two buildings and, you know, the, the parts of the north side are, you know, very reminiscent, extremely similar to those uh, in the south side where it's just very, very dense blocks, right? Massive building after massive building after massive building. And, you know, what, one thing that we have seen, and, and owners see this too, if you have a nicer asset to offer, um, whether that's a cleaner building, whether that's a more updated apartment, you're always going to have someone wanting to live there. And to, to that, um, you know, that's actually been somewhat of a shift on the south side from uh, when I started, you know, 10 years or so ago, where there, there really wasn't much in the market for tenants who wanted a, you know, nice place, who wanted a place that had granite countertops, who wanted stainless steel appliances, who wanted you know, kind of quality tech finishes just didn't really exist in the market. And then uh, what we saw through, you know, 2012 through 2016, all these uh, different owners came in, bought up dilapidated buildings and uh, put in really, really nice finishes that people thought um, were a little bit too nice for the area, people said. But in actuality, what we saw was that was a need, that was a want in the market. And there was a lot of tenants who were looking for that sort of thing, willing to pay up for it. And um, those owners who did that are uh, reaping the 
benefits of putting out a quality product. And like Noah said, there are tenants willing to pay up for that. Um, coupled with what I was saying, units like that will always will always be more in demand. Uh, you know, tenants are always going to want the nicer, just like anywhere. You're going to always have a tenant who's going to want the nicest and best option. And as on the other end, Phil, as a landlord, as an owner, you're not only going to attract the highest paying tenant, but probably the best quality tenant too. Yeah, I think that's right. One other question that we should ask is just, if we're talking about 2021 state of the market, we are having a, a change in administration, we think, uh, coming in January. Looks that way. Do you anticipate that the change in federal administration to have any effect, what's positively or negatively on multifamily markets? I, I really don't think um, that we'll see that big effect, especially on the south side of the city. I think that um, you know activity activity down here has trended in a very positive direction for things that are happening on a micro level here. I, I think that people that invest in the south side of Chicago are attracted to the area um, because of the cash flow and what they've gotten with that cash flow is great appreciation over the last year. So it's last, you know, 10 years. So it's made it, it's made it a very special and great market to be in. I don't really see that changing um, with whoever's in office. It, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really change the, um, the main reasons why anybody would invest in here or not invest um, in the South side in general. So I agree with that, uh, Noah. And to add to that, um, I, I think if there is any change, um, it might shrink some of the returns, right? Uh, if interest rates go up to you know where they were, which is still an inherently low level, um, yeah, that will definitely make investing less sexy. Um, you know, if you take uh, if, if you take the thirty year and double it, it's you know it it, it goes up however many you know, basis points. Um, but that said, it is still, it, you know, and people like Noah said, people invest in the South side for the cash flow. And there, there, there is still such an incredibly large, you know, amount of money and cash flow that one can make, um, you know, assuming they do everything right. So I do think it will still be an incredibly appealing and attractive asset uh, regardless who is in office and regardless of what kind of shift there is in politics. And, and a little bit of that is due to if something very negative happened um, across the multifamily uh, landscape that affected multifamily prices or affected multifamily returns, it would in a lot of ways impact areas with lower returns um, a little bit more. You know, for instance, if you're buying stuff where you're looking for a 5% return and uh, interest rates go up significantly and now it drops to maybe a 1% return, that's that's a big dip. But what we see on the south side is that most people are looking for you know a 15 to 20% return. So when things like interest rates uh, move up, it goes to a you know 12 to 18% return or something like that. Just it just doesn't, it's still a very attractive thing to invest in at that point. Yeah, that 80% drop in revenue affects you a lot more when when it's an 80% drop in revenue versus you know maybe only a 20% drop in revenue given how high your yield actually is. Since you all have been in the market for several years now, have you seen uh, that the 
the properties themselves, are they priced pretty much right on point with cap rates and cash flow? Or have you seen that the buildings are actually appreciating in value uh, in addition to just just pricing based on cash flow? So, you know, Phil, to answer that question, I'm going to kind of, you know, go backwards and talk about, you know, what we spoke about maybe 20 minutes ago, the shift of buyers, the buyer profile, um, you know, who is buying these buildings. And I said there really wasn't a stereotypical profile, um, but I would say six to seven years ago, and really before then too, the one metric that people cared most about while investing in the South side wasn't necessarily yield, wasn't necessarily cash flow, cap rate. It was almost price per door. It was almost as if Bill, everyone had a mental number in mind that they weren't going to go over that. Whether it's, you know, whether it's a five cap, six cap, zero cap, you know, 30 cap, it was irrelevant. Uh, most people didn't want to spend more than 25 to 30, maybe $35,000 per door per unit, right? If it's a 10 unit building, the highest price I'll pay is $300,000 or 350 and so on and so forth. Um, and that was, you know, that was, that was almost uh, not just the buyer's mindset, but the seller's mindset too. Um, you know, regardless of how much money my building brings in, if it's completely vacant or if, you know, it's bringing in money hand over fist, um, I want to sell it for, you know, the highest price possible, 35 or even $40,000 a unit, which was an unheard of sum at the time. Um, fast forward the clock, you know, super, super, super fast forward, five, six years later to the current, price per unit is one of the least, it, it's definitely not the least, it's, it's definitely used, but it is not near the top of the list of metrics that people use when evaluating a building. It is almost all financially, uh, everything is almost all, financially constructed now. Um, people only look at buildings on cash flow. People, people, you know, typically just care about the cap rates and the cash flow. As a result, they can justify an inordinately higher, you know, number, a higher sales price, a higher per unit price. So to, you know, I've been talking for two minutes now to circle back to the original question, do we see prices uh, at, at fair market levels right now? I think there's an incredible shift. I, I don't necessarily know what is fair. And I say that just because, Phil, you know, the, the, the definition of fair used to be, you know, $30,000, $35,000 a door. The definition of fair today is not necessarily in terms of price per unit, but in terms of cap rate, you know, 9, 10, maybe 11 cap. And so when, you know, when you take the cap rate, you can have it at $30,000 a door, or you can have it at $90,000 a door. Um, but I would say now the fair cap rate is probably anywhere from nine, 10 to 11. And, and the, the buildings themselves have changed so drastically in the last, uh, the last 10 years or so, just, just because back when it was a very price per unit type market, there were, there were literally thousands of buildings that were just so you know, tattered and so run down. Um, that people just looked at them as, you know, this is a unit I'm going to have to go in and figure out my rehab costs and that sort of thing. So they weren't they weren't trading the financials the way that a traditional market um, trades. As as these investors went in and improved these buildings, um, it it inevitably improved the communities as well, which you know eventually led it to become a more traditional type market where people are more concerned with um, with cap rates, um, things like that. So. We've seen the cap rates maybe dip down a little bit, um, but more so it's just been a transition almost of what people were looking at. 
Yeah, that's super interesting. I had another question that's kind of shifting gears a little bit, but I wanted to know in 2018, the Opportunity Zone Act came into effect. Do you see or do you work with investors that are looking for Opportunity Zone projects where they buy a building that needs to be substantially improved and renovated and they're going to hold for a long time? Is that actually occurred i i've done a few deals myself uh but i and i see it but i i wonder from people who are doing the volume that you're doing uh and you, you talk to so many more people than i do um are you seeing opportunity zone investors is that actually happening um you know from from people that I know in other markets, uh, it's definitely happening uh, a lot of a lot of other opportunity zones have flourished it's uh you know, in my opinion, was a really good idea to bring in capital into some of these underserved communities. And we've seen it happen quite a bit. On the south side of Chicago, we've we've definitely done um, a few opportunity zone deals, but not nearly uh, what we would have thought going into it. So, you know, if if we close 50 buildings a year over the last two years or whenever that was put into place, I'd say maybe five or six maybe were motivated solely by opportunity zone dollars. Um, and one deal that I'm thinking of in particular was a group that had almost exclusively owned in River North. Um, and they brought some money down to South Shore. Um, they went in, they bought a building that had been vacant for years um, and they completely rehabbed it. And their plan is to just hold it um, for the benefits that the opportunity zone has to offer. It, had, it definitely hasn't been as, as much as other markets, but we've seen a little bit, I guess. You know, I'll tell you, and to add to that, Phil, one of the things that a lot of people don't necessarily know about the Opportunity Zone is, you know, on, on the surface level, you basically need to put in, you know, more or less $1 in improvements or updates for every dollar that you spend on a building. Um, you basically need to double your basis. So if you buy a building for a million dollars, you need to put in a million dollars in improvements. Um, in order for those numbers to work, you need to have an incredibly low basis um, if you're buying a multifamily building that you're gonna be rehabbing. And fortunately, there really aren't a whole lot, and look, it works best if, you know, like Noah was saying, if you can buy you know, a really nice, beautifully, uh, you know, situated building that needs everything, a building that's been sitting vacant um, and dormant and needs a full gut renovation. Fortunately, or unfortunately, if you're looking to do this, there really aren't a whole lot of opportunities that allow an investor to go in and take advantage of an empty building and really rehab it completely. Um, now, that said, there are you know, no shortages of opportunities if you're looking to buy uh, land and build, you know, build a structure, um, buy a parcel and build a strip center, do something with retail. Uh, in other markets, uh, there are, you know, there's a ton of opportunities, so excuse me, investors in Denver who are buying uh, parcels of land and building you know, mid to high rises. That's not really anything we have seen quite yet in our markets, um, but to like, you know, to what Noah said, probably 1% of our activity has been guys solely looking at vacant buildings that they can put, you know, everything into 
and hold it for you know their however long they plan on holding it for 10 plus years and reaping the benefits of you know the tax ramifications of the plan. And, and lastly, on, on this point, um, I, I really do think that opportunity zones would have been much more impactful on the south side of Chicago if it was something that was put into place in maybe you know 2010, 2012. Um, well, what we saw back then was a lot of, or not a lot, we saw you know a few very opportunistic um, groups who were coming in and saw this opportunity to you know revitalize this these areas of the south side. Um, there wasn't a lot of competition, so you, you really had two or three groups that were going through um, the city and buying up these buildings that had been completely destroyed and improving them and you know improving the communities as they did that. I think that if opportunities zones would have existed back then, instead of it being two or three um, groups that were the ones that were you know improving all these buildings, I think you would have seen a lot of other groups coming in to do the same. Interesting, interesting. So we've been saying, I've been referring to the South Side of Chicago, but that is a massive geographic region, and there's all sorts of different subsets and sub neighborhoods. Um, which neighborhood do you think presents a lot of value uh, for investors? Do you think is just a great market, and people aren't paying enough attention to it? I think, I, I, Bill, I think that there are so many, and like you said, the South Side is. You know, it's a very general term for a combination of several different neighborhoods, right? North of Hyde Park, you have uh, Kenwood, you have Bronzeville, uh, you have Grand Boulevard, you have Washington Park just west of it. South of it, you have East Woodlawn kissing that, and you have Jackson Park basically hugging that. Uh, you have South Shore right along the lake, you have Chatham, which is a extremely residential and communal pocket, and then west of the highway, you have Auburn Gresham, which is somewhat similar. And I, I think Every single different neighborhood presents an incredibly attractive opportunity. Um, and so it really depends on what you're looking for. I think they're all poised to appreciate. Again, you have you have South Shore, which is an incredibly beautiful pocket, literally right along Lake Michigan. I mean, you have South Shore Drive, and if you're standing on it, you can throw a rock into the into the lake. Um, and again, you have you have Jackson Park, you have Jackson Park Highlands. Uh, which is absolutely beautiful. And then, you know, your neighborhoods hugging Hyde Park. As Hyde Park has continued to expand both north and south, uh, you've seen incredible appreciation in Kenwood, Bronzeville, East Woodlawn. And so it really depends on what you're looking for. That was an excellent summary of the neighborhoods. I really like that. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. Um, we're getting near the end of our time here. So I just want to leave, kind of ask you, a little bit more of an open-ended question is just as we approach the new year, uh, do you have any predictions or things investors should keep in their mind as they kind of forecast and plan for the new year? From from our perspective, I really think that we're, we're not going to see huge change. I think that I think a lot of people are waiting for the change to happen, but I think that it's going to be pretty status quo here moving forward. Um, I would just advise investors maybe to keep some extra capital on the sides if they've been doing that for the chance that there will be some opportunities popping up. Um, I just don't know that it's going to be the opportunities that people have in their mind. I think that there's a lot of people who are waiting for 
2009, 2010 type opportunities to pop up there. And that's probably not gonna happen. So if, if people have been waiting for that, it's probably best to just get a little bit of that capital out, maybe leave um, you know, a small percentage back just in case that something like that does happen. I agree with that. Uh, Phil, I think the short term uh, as well as medium term going into 2021 will be somewhat consistent um, with the status quo. Uh, I, I, think, I think part of the reason that there was a huge rush of demand post the initial onset of COVID, right? May, uh, April, May, June, or, uh, was a, a lot of buyers thought that you know, the ramifications were going to be extremely significant and you know, it, it was just gonna be brutal everything was just going to get obliterated and this was going to be a great time to buy. Fortunately, that you know, if you're a landlord, fortunately that never really happened. Everything seemed somewhat consistent despite everything going on. However, as a result from, you know, the, the buyers who had that, you know, that notion in mind, they started picking up buildings despite the discount and I, I think that's going to for, I think that's going to further continue. Excellent. Well, Noah, Aaron, thank you guys for coming on the show. If any listeners want to get in touch with Noah and Aaron from Kaiser Group, uh, their information is on their website. We'll put links to Kaiser Group's website in our show, no show notes. And uh, if you want to have further discussions, Noah and Aaron are always available to discuss opportunities. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the show. All right, Phil, it's good to be here. Thank you. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 